Welcome back, Hollywood Live fans. On today's episode of Justice is Served, we talk an update in the Philando Castile case, the Cosby case, and a spate of Supreme Court decisions that have a great effect on you. Stay tuned for more. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is Served. What's wrong with the world, mama? Welcome to another episode of Justice is Served, guys. Uh, today we are down a couple of hosts, <laughs> but I am here with Yemi. Um, I am, Always holding down the fort. Yes, indeed. I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name is Shaka Smith. You guys can find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter at Shaka Strong. Yemi, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Yems. So, you know, we've had some, I guess, not great uh, news. Um, I, love, I love the music that we're playing, Where Is The Love? It seems really appropriate um, these days with some uh, recent cases that have taken place. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a little bit of breaking news. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware, but in the Civil Smith, Smith case, Dominique Keegan Brown, the officer that shot him, was acquitted today. Um, and, you know, just we're seeing a lot more acquittals where it seemed like we were having a t- the tide is being turned. Um, it seemed like we were seeing people, officers being held accountable um, previously, but now it seems like they're not being held accountable at all. I don't know. Have we been seeing officers being held accountable? I, well, I, I've seen us go from officers not being held accountable at all to officers being charged and then not held accountable, and, yeah. that, and that's where I feel like we're at right now. We haven't gotten to the place where they're getting charged and and. and Held accountable and being found culpable. Yeah, I, mean, we, I think we did have, even, we had a few cases um, maybe about six months ago where the officers were being charged, at least being charged, and then I believe we had one, we had one conviction. There was one. Yeah. I mean, so well, I, I thought that was going to be the beginning <laughs> of uh, <laughs> the change. Um, but yeah, Civil Smith, he was, uh, if you guys remember, um, he was running away from the officer after a traffic stop. He did have a gun. He threw that gun over a fence and was shot in the arm as a result. And then the officer shot a second shot that killed him. Mm-hmm. And you know, the question was whether that second shot, you know, was needed. And you would think no, because he didn't have the gun any longer. Um, and that officer, Dominique Keegan Brown, was actually fired in October um, on an unrelated sexual assault case. Hmm. So it, you almost see a pattern of sort of misdeeds, but of course we know we can't enter that into the courtroom to, mm-hmm. to prove anything here. Um, and of course, the kind of jaw dropping Philando Castile case, where we had ample video evidence. Um, so what did you think about this acquittal of Officer Yanis? I mean, I, I think we talked about this maybe last week where I said, and I feel like I've been saying it all along, that I didn't think that um, that there was going to be a conviction. And I'm not actually really surprised that there wasn't a conviction. Um, I feel like juries tend to give officers the benefit of the doubt. I think the fact that officers have to make split-second decisions uh, in milliseconds of time, I think jurors are very, very sensitive to that. And therefore, they kind of follow the same practice that we've seen kind of historically, even though it makes us, the video makes us uncomfortable and it looks wrong and it feels wrong. You know, legally, it doesn't seem a lot of jurors feel that it is wrong or they don't feel like they need to hold police officers to the same standard as maybe they would another another bystander and, and, on the street. And typically, I agree with you because of the, the higher standards um, standard that police get to have in these cases. But we, the video to me, withdrawing the video to me, is what made me think this case would definitely be different. Um, and then we, al- we also know they had access to other video that we didn't have access to until just recently, the dash cam video, where you see the officer gun drawn, you see Philando Castile offer up that he yeah. has a gun. Um, I mean, I mean e- even the girlfriend says, you know, he's got a gun, he's reaching for his, other, his uh, license. To me, it was just sort of beyond the pale in terms of how he could be acquitted of these charges. 
yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think one of the things that I mentioned last week was that you're more concerned about the individuals who are acting shifty or shady or look like they're trying to hide something. I would think an officer would be less concerned about uh, an individual who is cooperative, you know, right. talking to them. I hand you my insurance card. I tell you, by the way, I have to inform you, you have a gun. I would think that an officer would be uh, less... That would increase the level of trust. Right. But um, in this case, I mean, I think you hear Officer Yanez on the um, dash cam video afterwards saying, you know, I, I was nervous. I think he actually said that yeah. he was he was nervous, and I think that was pretty much what happened. He was nervous. He overreacted, um, and this unfortunate incident then took place. But and we can't forget the, the number of times Philando Castile had been stopped by police was just insane in this amount of time he'd been living there. And he was stopped this time because he had a wide nose that resembled a robbery suspect. Yeah, the whole thing, it's, it's so unfortunate. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous. Um, there had been a robbery at a store four days prior in the area, and the only description of the guy was that he was black with the dreadlocks, yeah. which honestly isn't even enough um, enough of a description or enough of a basis to, you know, say, okay, I can stop anyone who just is black with dreadlocks. Um, you know, for that to be a reasonable search or seizure or stop, you know, you need something more than just such a generic um, description. So I, I still think Officer Yanez stopped him, you know, he used the broken taillight as pretext mm. to stop him for what he thought was, you know, this is the armed robber. Um, and then we have a situation like this that, that unfolds and unfortunately costs a young man his life for no reason. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what do we do or as lawyers, as people, that where we can start to say, what part of the system failed here? What, what part of the system do you think that we could improve upon? Because I'm, I'm at the point where, like, I, I always believe the system would work, and especially in a case like this where we had, it seemed, all the pieces of evidence that were necessary for it to work. So I don't know that... Because I, th I think because historically jurors, again are very hesitant to hold officers liable, um, you know, because they say, hey, these officers, they put their lives on the and line. The, and, and there were some black jury members here, too. Yeah, there, there, there two, were. Right? There were two black jury members. And initially, when they took their initial vote after uh, hearing the case, the, the vote was eight to four. Mm -hmm. And then as they, uh, eight to four in favor, I think, of, a, of an acquittal. And then after after some deliberations, the... Um, the, ch the change was to from 10 jurors to two jurors in favor of acquittal. Um, and they pointed out that the two jurors that uh, wanted a, a conviction were not the black, yeah. uh, were not the black jurors. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know where we go. And obviously, we've to some degree lost our <laughs> DOJ and um, working with police departments. But I mean, I think, I mean, we say it all the time, training is training is critical because it's clearly not happening at the jury phase. Mm -hmm. At the jury phase, juries are pretty much saying, you know, we're not going to hold an officer liable unless unless it's unless it's so blatant. I mean, and that, that, that standard seems to be pretty high at this yeah, point. It's almost like malicious. It has to be a, an officer who's gone rogue for it, them exactly. to... Exactly. Yeah. And so knowing that that's where we are, not that we should accept that, but understanding that I think it really does rely on officer training. You know, one of the things that came about was, you know, he, Philando Castile said, I, I have to inform you, I have a, I have a gun on me yeah. or I have a firearm. The officer didn't say, you know, okay, you know, stop what you're doing. Keep your hands on the steer steering wheel. He yeah. didn't give any instructions other than to say, okay, yeah. just make sure you don't, just make sure you don't reach for it. Yeah. But, but you just told me to get my yeah my ID my they, ID you know so 
I th- that was a shortcoming, and I'm sure he real. I hope he realizes that, and I think that's going to be an important part, you know, in terms of the training process, specifically in those instances where you know that somebody does have a have a gun on them. Yeah, I mean, this is a tragedy, but hopefully somehow um, the Castile family can find some sort of measure of justice, whether it's in a lawsuit or, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, in, in a civil case. Yeah. And uh, another surprising, um, a surprising update is in the Bill Cosby case, um, where, I, where I thought was surprising. Um, we, <laughs> so we, we got a. Am hum- I the only skeptic on this on this panel here? Well, uh, apparently, because I, I would say I was doing pretty well in my prediction <laughs> of where cases were going up That's- until this point. <laughs> and so I, I really had no doubt in my mind that Cosby would be found guilty here. Um, we know that Andrea Constant. This is where this arose from. This you know meeting with Bill Cosby in 2004 uh, or, or maybe 2004 she didn't report it till about a year later and so she was the last one that was kind of fell under the statute of limitations and you know Bill Cosby admitted to using the quaaludes I mean he had already gotten a civil suit um, settlement, settlement. Mm-hmm. and during that settlement he had admitted to using um, quaaludes and using these different drugs with women he wanted to have sex with um, Andrew Constant is a lesbian uh, so I I don't know how a jury found that she was somehow wanting to be a part of what happened that evening when she has no interest in men. And, you know, it it seemed to me her actions were in line with someone who was not trying to trap Mr. Cosby or trying to be with Mr. Cosby in line later. But what did you think about how this shook out? I, I thought that one of the big things for the jurors was going to be her inconsistencies and in her statements that she gave in 2005, which was a year after the alleged incident, incident and her testimony here in 2007 or 16, uh, you know, 13 years after the incident. Um, so I thought that was going to be a big hang-up for the jury. We haven't heard from the jury what you know, what the nature of their deliberations were, what the hang-ups were, and I think the judge actually instructed them not to say anything because there's going to be a retry, well, uh, prosecutors say they're going to retry the case. Yeah. So he told the jurors not to, to not to say anything. Um, there was one juror who spoke out and said, you know, I found Mrs. Constant, um, you know, to be very reliable, and I just wanted to hug her. I felt so bad for her, but he was that that juror was an alternate and wasn't a part of the del- deliberations. Um, but I think one of the big things that I'm sure the jurors got caught up on were, were those inconsistencies, because I think anytime you have a, a case of he said she said, and on top of that you have these inconsistencies, it's hard to find re- you know beyond a reasonable doubt in those in those situations. Even do- even even though you know Cosby admittedly you know yeah. was maybe grotesque in his his you know his efforts to sleep with women um you know very very young women or take advantage of women who are seeking advice on their careers um and you know just taking advantage like and stepping outside of his marriage things mm-hmm. like that clearly there was some messy stuff going on there but i think maybe the jurors just couldn't overcome the need to to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, and didn't they have one witness? Um, they were allowed to offer one witness, or not one witness, but someone who could, um, who was able to testify to the fact that this was kind of what Cosby had done before. And so I thought that was interesting that they they, they had the one, and then of course the jury knew. They probably were instructed not to regard <laughs> the other 60 women. But they, you know, it's in the back of your head, you must know. I, so that's what kind of blew me. But I guess to some degree they really followed those jury instructions and put those other 60 women out of their head and just really went on what they saw in that courtroom. Uh, I mean, and and that's their duty as jurors. You're not supposed to be taking into account things that are external to the case. So if that's what they did, then they, they, 
they they did right by the law or the justice system, um, even if that way. might not, <laughs> even if that may you know may not be doing right by Andrea Constant in in some people's minds. Yeah, and and I guess now the um, the Cosby lawyer is saying. Well, Mr. Cosby's in poor health. It, you know, he had a tough time even getting to the courtroom this time, uh, and he's almost 80, and they're going to retry him. Do you think? I know they tried this earlier to kind of get him off and not um, try him in the first place based on his health. Do you think they're going to have any success on you know offering that as a reason for him not to be tried? He can't see. He's blind. I'm sure they'll try. Yeah. I mean, there's no harm in trying. Any success on that issue? <laughs> yeah, I guess they failed <laughs> once already. I don't think so because the judge seemed. Um, I think, or, or who was it? Maybe it was the uh, the prosecutor. I mean, they, was it the judge? I, I think it was the judge who mentioned that, you know, we'll make sure to reschedule this trial, yeah. assuming that the uh, prosecutors move to retry it. I, I believe it was the no, judge. No, the judge within 120 days. Within, within 120 days. So it yeah. seems like the judge is not really... Yeah, going to be swayed by any yeah. of those arguments. No. Um, so I guess the Cosby saga continues. I really thought it would be over. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll get more on that uh, in the future. I... Yeah, I mean, he's going to be retried. So. Yeah, he's going to be and retried. And they seem adamant about it, the prosecutors, so. Yeah, I think that the, the more interesting question, maybe it's not, maybe it's an easy to answer question in my mind. The uh, more interesting question is, you know, is Bill Cosby going to testify in this second trial? Yeah. Or is the defense going to put on more evidence? Remember, in this trial, the defense only put on six minutes worth of uh, testimony from a police officer, and that was that yeah, was yeah. it. Uh, Andrea Constant was on the on the stand for a total of nine hours over the course of two days, um, and they presented testimony for I think about like six days or something yeah. like that. Whereas uh, Cosby's defense team, yeah. literally six minutes, which is I mean essentially not no defense. Yeah. Um, so is are they going to try the same tactic in the next trial? I would think are they- so because <laughs> you, you don't want Cosby having to get up there and testify about. And he might open the door to he would, the other, uh, He yeah. absolutely <laughs> will. I mean, I think no lawyer in their sane mind would put him on the stand. Even when you read the, the 2005 deposition, yeah. I mean, it's just hearing him speak. It, first off, a lot of it is incoherent, and he goes just wandering uh, into new lands. I just feel like it would be hard to rein in and keep his yeah. testimony tight. Because if you weren't able to do that and they could somehow now bring in the other 60 women mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that would be a disaster for Mr. Cosby. So I think you'll see the same sort of legal strategy um, when it comes to the defense. Short and sweet. Um, another case which I thought was interesting uh, is this suicide texting case. So we have a young lady who's text, um, or I guess her boyfriend is suicidal, and she text him at first she seems to text him and say hey let's not don't do this you know there are ways to get help exactly people love you and then she changes her tactic based on what she says she'd read on the internet and she encourages him to do it but somehow she now she is convicted of (laughs) of this guy assisted suicide essentially um as a result, what did you think of this this outcome? Now, this case actually blew my head, like, out of the water. You know, me, as I said, I'm so skeptical on all these cases of whether there's ever going to be a conviction. I'm like, no, 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 no. And, yeah. I, and in this instance, I know it's not a police brutality case, but in this instance, it's still a case where, you know, young, blonde hair, blue-eyed, young girl... Um, and then the charge doesn't even really seem to be aligned with what she's doing because she was charged with involuntary manslaughter, yeah. even though she wasn't in the car with the boy who, who committed suicide by um, infusing basically carbon monoxide into, into his truck, in, into yeah. his truck. Um, so she wasn't there with the boy at the time. Um, you know, they talked on the phone. They was te- it Michelle Carter? I'm getting that name. Yeah, uh, they 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 talked on the phone. They texted. So I would think that. You know, how can you be responsible for manslaughter, voluntary or involuntary, when the person wasn't even there? And when you're talking about a case of suicide and not 
homicide, yeah. um, you know, which it, the definition of itself is that some like this person did it to themselves rather than someone else. So this was a case that I thought was basically like a, sh- a shoe in for her. I thought yeah. she was going to win, and so then to see that she was convicted, I was I was beyond surprised. And especially because she had this um, interesting defense where she she had an evidence of it that she had read online that the way to convince someone of not committing suicide is to go along with them, like and say go go for it, and they'll realize the silliness or the error of their ways. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know that she uh, did that. I mean, yeah. I know that the the prosecution tried to say that she because she had her own issues. She had yeah. issues with depression. She was she on medication. Not, yeah. She had eating disorders. I think she had also harming herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had cut herself previously. Um, so the prosecutors were arguing that she was real. She was hoping that he would kill himself so that she could get sympathy from her friends as the aggrieved, oh, uh, as the aggrieved, almost like a Munchausen sort of girlfriend. And so that's that's how they that's how they painted her. Yeah, it was interesting. But you know, I, when I read a little bit more about the details, because they were on the phone for forty minutes. At one point, he exited the vehicle and was like, "I don't want to do this," and she convinces him to get back in the vehicle. And that well, that was the crux of the the judge's decision. It wasn't yeah. so much the text that had taken place over the course of months, and uh, I guess more with more frequency in the couple of weeks leading up to his death. It wasn't that. It was the fact that while he was in the car suffering from the carbon monoxide, having trouble breathing. He actually got out of the car. He couldn't do it. He didn't want to go along with it. And she said, no, 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 get back in there. And that was the moment at which he said that, um, you know, her her vocal presence, I guess, on the phone amounted to, or I guess her virtual presence yeah. amounted to actual presence. And she had a duty to she, protect him yeah. or, you know, to do something. And she didn't. She One, she instructed him to go back into the car, uh, which for him, that was causality uh, to the judge. Um, and two, he she didn't report it afterwards. Um, afterwards, she texted the, the younger sister of the boy saying, by the way, have you heard from your brother? Where is he? As, yeah. though, she, as though she hadn't been on the phone with him while he was dying and then even the following day she never reported because it was about what was it 24 or 48 hours until they found him yeah it was the following day yeah and so she knew but she never told anyone even though I guess she had a number for the mother as well oh yeah Yeah. she had the contact information she had asked him for the contact information uh, for his family so that she could keep open a line of communication yeah um so her her behavior was a little bit odd, you know. I read that she she had re- told her friends, and again, this is going to the prosecutor's um, suggestion that she just wanted sympathy. But she had told her friends that you know her boyfriend had gone missing. This was two days before he even killed himself. Um, she asked him. She asked his uh, mom, like again, where is he? Where is he? Even though she knew that he had just uh, committed suicide. And the third thing that I thought was just absolutely terrible was apparently she organized a baseball fundraiser to raise awareness of... Suicide prevention. uh, Yeah, Yeah. of suicide prevention. And it wasn't even in his hometown, but it was in her hometown, uh, again, to suggest that she just wanted kind of the attention of of being the the strong girlfriend who just lost her boyfriend. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was an odd case, but, you know, the judge really... It really turned on that getting back into the vehicle. Once you create a dangerous and risky um, situation, you've now created duty for yourself to remove that person from that situation as well. And, so. and what's crazy is the fact that, you know, he had had suicide attempts previously, so the um, defense tried to argue that, you know, it's not her fault. He he might have done it anyway. You know, he had tried yeah. before, and, you know, who knows, maybe t- he'll try again, but that that yeah. wasn't that wasn't enough. Um, what did you think about the fact that she asked for a bench trial rather than a jury trial? Uh, I thought that was interesting, too. Um, 
I would have gone with a jury trial. Huh, I, I, I mean, I thought she was a very sympathetic defendant. Of course. Yeah. So I, I, the judge is going to look, you know, look a little bit more legally at certain things and not have as much, you know, sympathy for the defendant. So for a young twenty-year-old girl who yeah. still has the rest of her life ahead of her, I was like, there's no way a jury is going to convict, you yeah, know, convict her. But yeah, I don't know. They went for the bench trial, and so I'm sure there will be an appeal process, and we'll follow up on that case. But it was very interesting. Yeah. Do you think it will stand on appeal? After hearing after hearing some more of the facts of the case, I think it just might. Um, that intervening cause of having him go back into the truck, that to me was pretty... They were on the phone for 40 minutes. They were, but they were also just and, talking and on she, the phone. And she heard him as he's coughing in the truck. So her her defense of, I'm going to text him to like go along with this and he'll realize how crazy it is, kind of flew out the window once she's like on the phone with him coughing in the carbon monoxide, and she can hear it. And they knew that the whatever mechanism he used to pump it in the truck was close enough to the phone that she could hear it being pumped in, and she could hear him coughing. So those facts made me go, "Oh wow!" Because I, I, initially I didn't realize like they were on the phone. I thought it was just through text. Oh, so well, so I don't know. That it didn't really make a difference to me. I thought the fact that first off, it's a suicide. I, I felt that she can't really be held liable for like a homicide when it was a suicide, um, and. Secondly, like, what does that mean if I if I now? Oh, sorry. And the second piece, even before that, is the fact that uh, Massachusetts doesn't have any laws, kind of against like assisted assisted suicide yeah. or condemning helping someone with suicide. So, because there was no state law on that, and I thought it was again still surprising. Um, and then the third piece is then yeah, what does that mean for like speech and you know what we're able to say and how we're held liable and accountable for certain words when it's really someone else taking the action and our words are just words. Well, in Massachusetts they do have the the law that we're, the court case that kind of created the duty that once you create a reckless condition you have a duty to remove that reckless condition or remove that person from it. Mm-hmm. And I think she certainly created that condition. I think it was even her idea to do it this way it was to use she a She gave cover. him so many ideas. Yeah. She said, "Hang yourself, jump from a building, stab yourself." But this one she was like, like this pill, one was, a box of Tylenol pills. I mean, the yeah. girl was just awful. But she said, this one is going to be real easy and simple. And uh, this was really her plan to me, is what, what it seemed like. So the guy might have done it some other time in the future, but doing it this way at this time was really because of her. And so once I saw that, I was like, I think this will stand on appeal. But we'll we'll see. She's going to get sentenced on August third, so we'll see yeah. if she, you know she she could be sentenced to up to twenty years. We'll see if they fall short of that. Are they going to just give her probation? You know, and what are they going to do? Hopefully, some sort of mental health. Cause I think she's suffering from mm-hmm. something as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we also had a recent spate of Supreme Court cases that are um, quite interesting, and it'll be really interesting to see how the well, the last one we'll discuss will go. But we'll start off with that um, North Carolina social media law. Um, it was to keep, and I, I, I like the law, so I'm a little, you know, I don't know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know um, if I like this outcome necessarily, but, you know, um, it was to really keep uh, anyone registered uh, registered sex offenders off of Facebook or any other social network where they know minors are allowed to join. Um, this particular case, however, was a little bit different. The defendant here, or the plaintiff here, um, joined uh, Facebook, and he tweeted something about a ticket that he had gotten uh, sweet day, awesome day (laughs) (laughs) ticket I got off great, Um, and of course now he was in violation of um, this law where um, sex offenders cannot be on social media, what do you think about the outcome and the outcome here was that the law was unconstitutional, was overbroad um, and he, he should not be held you know 
he should not be held liable for any criminal um, misdeeds as a result. What do you think? I actually thought it was a fair outcome. This case was decided 8-0 eight, eight, eight uh, by the Supreme Court, so all of the justices were in favor. Yeah. Uh, Neil Gorsuch wasn't a part of the decision because he wasn't a part of the uh, arguments. Um, but I actually thought it was a fair outcome, uh, and I thought that the law in terms of not allowing sex offenders to use what is such a huge, pla- I mean, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're such huge platforms for, you know, news, for, you know, kind of having your voice heard. Um, some of these things, you finding employment, and there's so many ways in which to use them to then remove that um, benefit from these offenders just because they're sex offenders. I thought it was, I thought it was a bit of a broad law. Note that this guy, um, he wasn't a child molester. His, his, his sex offense was against an adult. It wasn't against a child. No. So it doesn't really serve a purpose for him to be off of Facebook just because children can, yeah. can be on it. So I thought that maybe North Carolina just needs to narrow, narrowly tailor their law because you know he argued that you're infringing on my my right to free speech and when you're infringing on such a core core right uh that in order to do so the law does need to be narrowly tailored to meet that government interest yeah and, protecting children and then i do agree obviously i like the idea of no sex offenders on social media <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, it, you know it sounds like a good idea but at the same time yes it does you, you don't want to be overbroad and limit the right to freedom of speech uh, and I, and interesting to note, Facebook's got 1.5 billion, you know, users. So you really are now stepping into a world. You know, it's not just a limited scape. You know, um, so I thought good outcome, but maybe they need to figure out a way to, you know, to make sure sex offenders are not able to get to these um, kids or, or you know, do anything socially that would be, you know, sexually offensive. And, you know, Louisiana also has a, a similar law re- re- not allowing um, sex offenders to be on social media, but at least that law pertains to, you know, sexual offenders who committed these offenses with children. So there's at least some amount of narrowing yeah. narrowing there. But um, it just seems that there's, you know, th- there's just so much in terms of what is social media. These new platforms are going to be popping up from now until infinity and yeah. You just can't remove everyone from from that that space. Yeah, and certainly the content of what he particularly in particular posted was not at all. Right, he was so realm. excited about getting off on his ta- t- traffic ticket, and then boom, boom. Back some officer it. saw him. Yeah, saw him make the post. So, um, and then we had another case. Um, we talked about it uh, before on the show uh, for a trademark. We had a group called the Slants, started mm-hmm. by um, some Asians, Asian Americans, I believe, um, and they wanted to kind of take back. Their power, and you know, we know we have we have that discussion in the black community often. So <laughs> well, want. we just yeah, we just had it with Ice Cube yeah. and uh, Bill Maher. So, um, so <laughs> they also want to take back their power, and they tried to trademark um, the name the Slants. And of course, the rule was if it was found disparaging by the uh, the trademark office, they would just deny the the claim. So they challenged that, and the Supreme Court said, "You're right to challenge it," and they can't just deny the mark because they find it disparaging. Um, what you? What are your thoughts on that? I had mixed feelings on this one because, at on on the one hand, well, okay, I had mixed feelings on this one. On the one hand, I don't want people running around, uh, you know, kind of branding items off of things that, you know, if someone wanted to trademark the N word or you yeah. know things like, I would take offense to that and I would have a problem with it. <laughs> and I, um. At the same time, I mean, and this is what the Supreme Court says, you can't um, infringe on someone's First Amendment rights just because 
those ideas offend or those words offend. Um, and because of that, you know, the slants are able to take back that word, as you said, and use it in connection with um, with their band. I just think that it's going to open the floodgates for people to yeah. start now registering trademarks under highly offensive uh, names and terms. And we're just going to have to get used to, you know, seeing commerce, um, people engaging in trade and commerce uh, under the, underneath those names. Uh, and, you know, this really opens up the case for the Washington Redskins who were denied. <laughs> um, they were denied uh, or their trademark was pulled as, yeah. um, because of this law. But now it looks like um, they'll be able to enjoy their trademark. I don't know what their, their process will have to be now. Or oh, I'm sure they're running to the courts yeah. already. I mean, I'm sure they're because, you know, when you lose when you lose your trademark um, registration, it doesn't mean that you can't, you, you know, use the trademark. Obviously, the Redskins are still moving forward. Like they still play yeah. with the logo and the hats and the gear. Um, so it doesn't remove their ability to use the mark. It just limits the protections that you're able to gain by having a trademark registration. Yeah. Other but people I'm, may be able to infringe mm-hmm. on that and you don't have that that outlet. Yeah. So, um, so I'm sure they're going to be running, running, uh, to the courts to get their trademarks, trademarks reinstated. Um, but one important thing that I did think that the uh, justices mentioned in this case was that, you know, if we now start, um, refusing trademarks on the basis of the fact that they offend or are disparaging to a group, you know, what happens with other forms of intellectual property? What happens when, you know, an author writes a book that has content that's, you know, uh, provocative or, 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 or disparaging, or yeah. you know, a, a Offensive? Does that mean that the copyright office can now refuse to, you know, register a copyright for the for that author or for that book? Um, so I understand the kind of the scope of what it would mean to allow the trademark office to continue um, denying trademarks based on something that they find disparaging. Um, the same clause of that uh, of the the trademark rule. I mean, it applies to um, trademarks that are either immoral, scandalous, or disparaging. Yeah. This case only touched upon the disparaging. Piece, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if other cases come up involving, you know, marks that are scandalous or um, immoral. Because again, there you have the judgment, uh, the the government kind of imposing their their interpretation of what is scandalous and or, what is immoral. Yeah, I think they're going to have to eventually just refine the law to some definites rather than um, leave it to sort of the you know, the purview of the office to say, oh, we believe it's immoral, we believe it's disparaging. They may have to come up with a list of terms or something that says these are kind of off limits because they, they rise to such a level that um, they're they're more harmful than, than good in terms of protecting your trademark. Mm-hmm. That's the only, only way I can see them kind of getting around this. Um, and then we have the last case. The Supreme Court has decided to take on a gerrymandering case that comes out of Wisconsin. Um, so we know with gerrymandering, it's kind of gone back and forth and uh, more recently now, they're saying, I believe it was Wisconsin, they had all, they had gerrymandering where they kind of redistrict for votes, and uh, your votes only count based on where you where you live. And so they had kind of done the districts in such a way as to put all the black people in two particular districts, so those districts would be represented by black people, but eventually, essentially, that voice would not be heard in other districts where technically they're, they're around. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Supreme Court said, well, it looks like they may say no to this based on uh, other recent Supreme Court cases, but what do you think? Uh, well, y- wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we've had, we've had um, you know, cases really speak um, to using racial, using racial guidelines in terms of uh, creating these districts, and we know that gerrymandering is not allowed based on racial uh, factors. Yeah. But the Supreme Court had never really been clear as to whether the How same far? holds... Well, the same whether the same holds on partisan um, 
partisan factors. You know, can a Republican-led, uh, um, you know, group that's organizing these districts, can they say, well, look, we're going to dilute the the votes of, you know, the, the, the few Democrats here and just completely dilute their vote? Or, you know, we're going to pack all of these Democrats into this district and, and draw these really funky lines to make sure that they're all in there. The, the court hadn't uh, really decided to what extent, um, you know, or... They, they can do that. And so in this case, we have an instance where, you know, they, they're they going to take a look at that and finally kind of reach a decision as to what is permissible. I think one of the challenges that they had previously was, you know, how do you measure the impact of, yeah. of drawing these lines? I think that was one of the reasons why they had stayed away from um, deciding cases like these. Because they, they had cases where it seemed to indicate as long as it's for a political purpose, even if it's sort of, you know caught in some racial minority, it was okay. You know, just because most minorities happen to be Democratic, it, you know, that was all right. But now they're saying, how far can you go when, when that happens? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so um, I think the fact that they didn't have a, a measure for the effect was a, was a big issue. But apparently there's an, uh, a professor out of the University of Chicago who's developed um, some sort of system that actually measures what he calls uh, the efficiency gap and the number of wasted votes when you put, when you pack certain um, v- voters of a certain uh, party into one district or you dilute them across, you know, a- yeah. another district, you know, how many wasted votes are there? And that might be one of the measures that the Supreme Court might be comfortable using. But this is a case that's going to be interesting and it's going to be a big decision in terms of um, in terms of voting rights. Yeah, uh, this will be huge for our elections. Yeah. So, and I, I, I believe I had heard Obama was working on gerrymandering projects post-presidency because that's really where the power is, is how our votes are being counted. So not just the fact that we have to go and vote, but how they're being counted in total. So that'll be interesting to see how that winds up. We'll definitely have an update on that. But um, I think we are done with our list of cases. Uh, Kind of a sad day with the acquittals, I think. But uh, hopefully we'll just... We'll just continue to kind of fight the good fight. And, you know, I know people are protesting out there, so we'll see where, where, where that leads to. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, my name is Shaka Smith. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at Shaka Strong. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ayamiams. We'll see you guys later. Thanks. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagramming, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.